0: dot com slash lincoln odoo modern management made simple everyone it's reed these next several episodes are going to be dedicated to the study and illustration of the white christian evangelical movement in america and what it means for our politics we've got some experts some very thoughtful people some authors who are all going to help us walk through exactly what's going on how this church operates and what it means for our democracy I hope you enjoy listening as much as I did interviewing. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reid Galen. Today, I'm joined by Katherine Stewart, an investigative reporter and author who has covered religious liberty, politics, policy, and education over the course of the past decade. Her latest book, available wherever fine books are sold, is called The Power Worshippers, Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism, which offers a look inside the machinery of the movement that helped bring Donald Trump to power and serves as the inspiration for the upcoming Rob Reiner-produced documentary, God and Country, which comes out later this week. Catherine, welcome to the show. It's
1: great to be here. Thank you so much for having me.
0: You know, I don't remember how I came across you, but I'm so glad that I did. I have read your book. As I told you before, I killed a highlighter on it. I don't even almost know where to start, but there are so many threads here, you know, whether or not it's the evangelical piece, the Christian nationalist piece, the money intertwining with the conservative movement. So take us through a little bit of just frankly how it works, because I don't think until I read your book, I had an idea. Take our listeners through a brief on how all this stuff works because there's so many people, so much money, so many churches. Give us a primer on that.
1: Well, let's take a minute to talk about what Christian nationalism is and what it's not. Christian nationalism is not a religion. It's not Christianity. It's a political phenomenon that involves the exploitation of religion. For political gain. So, as an ideology, it's basically the idea that America was founded as a so called Christian nation and that our laws should be based on the Bible. But this ideology is really a tool for a leadership driven political machine that turns that sort of mythology into political power. It's a deeply anti democratic movement. And I think the key to understanding this movement is to recognize that it's both leadership driven. It's not coming up from the rank and file, so it's driven by a cohort of leaders, but also organizations. It's organization-driven. And the power of this movement is really in that deep organizational network. And I think we can divide the organizations into categories. You have legal advocacy groups, a sort of vast legal sphere. You have policy groups. You have networking organizations that get members of the leadership on the same page and get them to sort of act in concert when necessary. You have a very vast information sphere or disinformation sphere, a kind of propaganda sphere. You have a very sophisticated data tools, all the features of modern political campaigns.
0: All done tax deductibly.
1: Yes. And and in fact, much of this network functions as a giant get out the vote machine in election cycles.
0: Right, so think about this. Just to interrupt, because now you've got me going. Is if I spend a dollar on a political campaign, Catherine, it's a dollar. In fact, it's probably less than a dollar. They get to spend basically a dollar forty on everything for their dollar.
1: Indeed, it's a structural advantage because a lot of times what they'll say is this isn't about partisan politics. This is really about values. So you know we haven't spoken yet about the like pastoral networks that get members of the clergy on the same page. They draw in tens of thousands of—some of these organizations have tens of thousands of pastors, affiliated pastors. They get them on the same page. They give them voter guides and very sophisticated tools to get them to turn out their congregations to vote. They know very well that for many Americans, the most trusted person in their life is their pastor. So if they can get the pastors, they can get the people— and you go to these events, or I've gone to a lot of these events like Watchmen on the Wall or Faith Wins and these other kinds of networking events for pastors, and they'll say, this isn't about partisan politics or party. We're just talking about values.
0: But let me ask you this, Catherine. Are your values Joe Biden's values, which is that is a person who eats babies and drinks their blood?
1: There is so much othering, so much referring to people who are political opponents as in these most humanizing terms. The satanic, demonic in recent years, the rhetoric has become just so much more overheated than it ever was.
0: I want to get deeper into the evangelical slash Trump thing in a second. But I wrote a thing a few weeks ago, maybe a couple of months ago now, Catherine, you know, said that MAG is basically the witch's brew, right? That it was this combination of hyper wealthy, which has a big close Venn diagram with these ultra right wing Christians, if that's what we're gonna call them you know, with the propaganda machine. Right. And then they found Trump. Right. It's the what's the definition of luck when preparation meets opportunity. And like Trump was an opportunity for them. Right. Like they finally found their guy. Like, I mean, I worked for George W. Bush. He was way more conservative than I ever was. Right. But I also remember, you know, when he gave the speech during the 2004 campaign about calling for a referendum on sanctifying marriage in the U.S. Constitution between a man and woman like you could see a man who had little to no interest whatsoever as like a policy or political thing, right? He just went through the motions on it. Trump, even less so, but he's like, tell me what you want me to say and I'll go do it. Because I think to your point about where it starts at the leadership piece and how it's not small d democratic is that it ultimately all comes down to
1: power. Absolutely. Listen, Trump gave them everything they wanted. He gave them access to the justices they wanted. He gave them the courts. He gave them access to public money. Policies that they want unprecedented power and political access. But there is more to it than that. I mean, Trump represents the lawlessness of the authoritarian. You know, this is a movement that is deeply anti democratic. They reject the principles of equality and justice that represent the best of the American promise. You know, and Trump sort of represents the lawlessness of the authoritarian. He breaks the rules. No, this is a movement that has persuaded a lot of the rank and file that they're in a struggle between absolute good and absolute evil. And if you've been persuaded that you know you're struggling against the demonic, satanic other, you don't want the nice guy fighting for you. You want the mean guys going to crack heads, as long as those heads belong to your enemies. There's more to it than that. Like you know, he's very identitarian. You know, the right often accuses the left of playing identity politics, but they play it much harder. You're either with us or you're against us. You're one of us. You're one of them. You're the pure versus the impure. And Trump does that, you know, in his speeches. He'll say, when they're coming after me, they're coming after you. It's also,
0: you know, and I think this is one thing that, you know, Republicans, conservatives, Trump's QAnon, MAGA, whoever it is, do much better than the Democrats, which is we're all in this together against them. They want to kill us. They want to destroy our way of life. Again, there's so much victimization either in Trump or in these churches, right? Whereas Democrats are like, we need to talk to them. We need to talk to each other, but I don't really want to talk to you. And we're all in this together. Yeah, but my thing is more important than your thing. Whereas Trump and look, as I've said, and the listeners are probably sick of me hearing it when you're a young Republican campaign person, it's just win, right? Republicans want to win. Democrats want to convince, and sometimes they win, but it's more often when they have the one, whether or not it's a Barack Obama or a Bill Clinton or somebody else, right? They don't go out and say, how are we going to win this, where Trump, the party, the churches, everything, it's existential.
1: That's true. You know, I think for Democrats, it's often about policy and for, unfortunately, where we are with the GOP right now, where the extremists have kind of taken over the party. It's really all about identity. And that identity is for the
0: vast majority is white.
1: That's absolutely true. I mean, the movement leaders can see the demographic future as clearly as you or I can. They know very well that their movement cannot succeed if it remains entirely white. So they've devoted enormous efforts into peeling. Look, elections are often one of the margins, not, you know, by solid majorities. So they have often target initiatives at, say, conservative-leaning churches that include people of color or, or, you know, certain conservative-leaning, often Latino churches that have charismatic or Pentecostal leaders. Obviously, Pentecostalism is incredibly diverse politically as well as racially diverse, but, you know, they do what they can to peel off the votes that they can. But yes, there's a kind of idea of, you know, the true Americans the real Americans who are assumed in people's minds, if not literally, to be Christian and also white.
0: And I want to stick to electoral politics here for a second, because in the movie God and Country, there's a guy named Paul Wyrick, whose name I had heard, but I was a generation late. In Republican politics for him to really if his main time was the 80s and early 90s, like I was too young. Right. My dad was involved and He probably knew who he was. But again, he was a moderate of all moderates. And I think it's a speech in 1980 that they show where he's like, I don't want all people voting. All people shouldn't vote.
1: He said that I don't want everybody to vote. Our influence in elections goes up when the number of people who vote goes down. He was known as the evil genius of the movement.
0: I mean, and that's saying something with this rogues gallery. And this is one thing, too, I think that I try to explain to whether or not it's just my friends, whether or not it's our political allies, whether or not it's our listeners, Catherine, is they have been at this a long time. They are very dedicated. They will change tactics, not out of any certain belief, but if it's expedient, if it's necessary, because, again, to them, it's all about, to your point winning. And and I want to go back to one thing you said about the demographics and somebody said well look the demographics are going to save us. I said they will, but not if the bad guys get there first. There are plenty of examples even today of majority populations being controlled by minority populations. This is not new in the span of human history. And so give us a little sense of like how did this even begin? Like who first got together to think that this was something that was necessary?
1: Well Paul Warwick is a really great Place to start because he and a cohort that called themselves the New Right were, in a sense, the key figures in what we could see as what became the Christian nationalist movement today. Paul Weirick was very involved in forming some of the key networks, uh, key organizations, the organizational infrastructure that created the Christian nationalist movement that we see today. He and his cohort founded the Council for National Policy which is a key organization that gets members of the network on the same page. They founded a number of other organizations. And what's happened over the past five decades is there has been investment, huge amounts of investment in this dense organizational infrastructure. And that's what gives the power its movement. They also allied with a lot of funders, very, very wealthy people. I describe a lot of them in my book, The Power Worshipers. Some of them are quite famous. I think about the Prince DeVos family juggernaut or the Wilkes brothers.
0: So just for clear, Betsy DeVos is from Michigan. She was Trump's secretary of education. She hates public education. And I want to get to the education piece of this for a second. Her brother, Eric Prince, was the head of Blackwater and widely thought to be as about as bad a dude as you're going to find out there. And this is all related back to the Amway people.
1: That's right. You know, they were early funders of the religious right. The family donated at least $5.5 million to Coral Ridge Ministries, led by a pastor named D. James Kennedy, who published a booklet. I wish I had it in front of me because the things he says about public education are really abhorrent. He talked about how public education was, he said, if, if this was done to It's atheistic, it's amoral. If it had been done to America by a foreign enemy, it would have been considered an act of war. I mean, the hostility to public education runs very deep in this movement because of its pluralism. Listen, public schools teach kids critical thinking if they're if they're doing it right. They teach kids how to get along with others, including kids who are different from them, and often they become the sort of center of communities. Well, There are members of this movement going way, way back who found public education absolutely abhorrent, especially because public schools were integrated. And back, you know, when in Paul Wyrick's time, when he was starting the new right, he allied with pastors like Bob Jones and Falwell, who often had schools, private, segregated religious schools that they were as part of their ministries. And they were really upset that the IRS was starting to look at these schools and say, why are we not taxing these schools? They're segregating. This isn't really okay."
0: Right. It was basically like integrate or you pay your taxes. And this became, again, racism. I'm going to just say it. Racism and money cloaked in Christ.
1: That's right. Listen, most American Christians reject the politics of conquest and division that this movement represents, they see religion as having to do with loving your neighbor and caring for the least of these. But this is a a cohort that realized if they could reframe religion in a different way, then they could actually, you know, or or emphasize a certain interpretation of religion, then they could use it as a a tool for their political project. And,
0: you know, I think they call, what do they call them? Not Liberty Academies, but they came up with all of these this is back in the 50s after Brown versus Board of Education, right, where they they started up these private
1: segregation academies. Yeah. Yeah. White
0: Christian private schools, for lack of a better way to put it. Right. That were, again, at the time, outside the bounds because nobody, you know, it's the bad guys always get there first and then the good guys got to figure out how to catch up. And so you, you see that stuff. And then you talk about, you know, Betsy DeVos as secretary of education says, I want to get rid of this Department of Education. We shouldn't have public education. And then, you know, you bring in how they co-opted some of the charter school movement. And there's not, And look, there are other religious-based schools in the country, right? We, obviously, we have Catholic schools. I'm sure there are Jewish schools and schools based on Islam. But again, those tended to stay within their faith as a means of not only providing a general education, but a general education based on the faith of this, as opposed to saying, we don't want anybody else, and the Bible is the word, and we want prayer in schools. And we want only these people. And it all comes down to, you can't tell me what to do. But I want to tell you what to do.
1: It's absolutely true. You know, I think the attack on public education has really been three-pronged. On the one hand, their efforts to force their programming into public schools. And that's sort of the route through which I started researching the rise of the religious right as a political force about 15 years ago. So they're forcing their programs into public schools where they can. They're fostering mistrust in public education. And that's where you get a lot of the fake CRT scandal, which is critical race theory was taught in a few little corners of some law schools. It's not taught in public K through 12. But as Christopher Rufo famously said, if we can sort of delink what critical race theory actually is, I'm paraphrasing here, from what it really means and just attached to it, everything that people don't like, we can really get some traction here. So all of a sudden, they're claiming that they're teaching CRT in public schools, which they're not. The Moms for Liberty project, which has imploded in such an interesting way, that was all intended to foster mistrust in public education. They claim kids are being indoctrinated in all kinds of nonsense, which they're not. And the third prong is really, you know, the st- fostering mistrust in public schools is really softening the ground for a money grab. This is a movement that sees the funding that goes into public education, and they know very well if they can get a portion of that and direct it toward their religious organizations, the money's going to flow without end. So not only do you have all these different kinds of schemes, and there are a lot of sort of religiously based sort of right-wing ideological charter schools drawing from the public dime. And enriching people that I found a couple of cases I describe in power shippers where these couple entrepreneurs in Arizona founded like a four charter network and sold it to his buddies. And all of a sudden he's got 15 million dollars in profit. That's taxpayer money. That's yours and mine.
0: Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software or just want to know what you could be missing then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com slash Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. I want to get to a couple of things. First is, a couple of, Gosh, it's a couple of years ago now, Catherine. Rick and I got a call from a, a very large educational organization saying, what are we going to do about CRT? And we said, you should call it out for what it is. It's racism. It's the N word, right? That's what it is. And they're like, well, we can't say that. I'm like, you absolutely can because it's true. You know, it's that old Lee Atwater video, Catherine, which is in the fifties, you could say inward, inward, inward by the seventies, it wasn't okay. So in the eighties, we came up with welfare moms. And then, you know, in the nineties, it was predators and now it's critical race theory. Like it's all the same through line, but it's still interesting to see how even people who are charged with caring about public information don't want to call these things out for what they are. And I think that's a huge thing that often gets missed is like, if you see something and you say, OK, well, CRT over here, CRT equals inward. Now, maybe that's uncomfortable. Maybe it's harsh, but that's what it is. The second piece is I think we saw just a couple of maybe last week as we're recording this, Catherine, I think it was in Ohio. They passed another one of these charter school bills. And what it shows is that the vast majority of these people who are getting these funds to send their kids to private school are the people, the exact people who don't need it. They're the wealthiest 5 or 10%, whatever it is, while school districts are now being told, well, we got to give all this money over here, so they're getting cut.
1: And they're struggling. Yeah, and it's really a shame because charter schools can discriminate against kids. Here's the other thing. Charter schools, a lot of them fail. They can sort of close, and then where does that leave the kids who are attending? Where does that leave the families? Makes it harder to provide wraparound services for kids who need those services and families who need those services but you know the destruction of public education is a long-term project of the religious right movement leaders often refer to public schools as government schools which sounds kind of scary and creepy
0: yeah brick stalinist brutalist architecture right where they've got the little red book in this hand and marxism leninism in this hand and they say power to the people to the proletariat right which in most cases the teachers are just trying to get through the god darn day Right. Like I got this probably have this thing I have to teach to. It's probably just as uninteresting for me as it is for the kids. Like that's a whole other discussion we could have, Catherine. But the idea here that, you know, public school teachers from kindergarten through 12th are, you know, figuring out how to, you know, the facets of Maoism or war communism. Come on. Right. Come on.
1: I know. You know, it, was, it took me a long time when I started researching this movement back in 2009 to wrap my head around the fact that their initiatives targeting public education were actually aimed at the destruction of public education altogether. But then I started reading into the writings of people like movement leaders, people who were working at the Family Research Council or or Heritage and some of the pastors like D. James Kennedy and, and folks like that. And I really had to recognize that they want the destruction of public education And that's just one small part of a larger project to destroy the institutions of a modern constitutional democracy. That's what we're facing today. A
0: social democracy. Let's be clear. Not a socialist country, but a social democracy, which is what we are. We're a largely post-industrial social democracy. Like, that's not a bad thing.
1: Fostering distrust in institutions of democracy is, you know, a way of making our country less governable and more unstable. And it clears the way for an authoritarian leader to come along and say, I alone can fix it. So what often is happening today with the GOP is they're trying to destroy the institutions of government and interfering with, they don't see politics as give and take or the art of compromise or things that will actually help our country. It's, you know, we just want to win all the time. It's a zero-sum game. They want things to not work so they can say, well, look at this, government doesn't work, and so therefore we need to take over. And if you look at projects like Project 2025, what's really interesting is Project 2025 was put together with the guidance of Heritage Foundation. There are a lot of different contributors. It's a sort of melding, I would say, of the religious right and a movement called the New Right, which has some similar aims to the religious right, but they also have some Pretty significant differences. It's an explicitly anti-democratic movement. It involves some key think tanks like the Claremont Institute.
0: The Claremont Institute could just as easily have been created in Munich in
1: 1927. Exactly. So you have a lot of contributors who are sort of religious right, true warriors, and then you have a lot of sort of Claremont-affiliated or similar think tank-affiliated contributors And you find these ideas baked into a lot of those chapters. So, for instance, the incoming Department of Health and Human Services guy says the most important thing is to make sure, you know, the government is pro-life, you know, anti-abortion. They're all in on this sort of anti-LGBT stuff. So that's like a major thing. And a lot of it has to do with some of the new right ideas about, you know, it's an explicit rejection of democracy and democratic principles
0: when we're bandying about these expressions like the rule of law catherine right they matter i think sometimes it's hard to quantify or qualify even what it means but that's the one thing that i think you see in this is i think the republican party is now a zombie occupied by the religious right maga trump whatever it is it's not what it was when i grew up and i don't even know what the heck it was when i grew up with it catherine but it's not that Right.
1: Well, the gatekeeping institutions have totally broken down, and now you have the extremists running the party. I and mean, if you look at somebody like House Speaker Mike Johnson, he has built his career in service to this movement, and all of his very extremist ideas, which are very far outside the mainstream. The you know anti-abortion absolutism, the idea you know praising 18th century values. He used to collaborate with these sort of young Earth creationist organizations that is part and parcel of the Christian nationalist movement. It's not, these are not just sort of a set of ideas that just came to him. They're very much part of that movement.
0: Right. And he's also the same guy who says, like, the government should be in people's bedrooms. It also turns out that as we're recording this, he's, you know, we're recording this about a week before we're going to run this, Catherine, is, you know, he had a historically bad day on Capitol Hill for for his conference. Uh, And it shows you that, you know, just because you believe you're Moses. The truth is you were sitting in the back bench for a number of years. Now you're sitting in the big chair and you're really not at all qualified to do any of this. But that's really part and parcel of the whole thing when it comes to these people sliding into positions of power and authority, which is they're either hyper competent in a very evil way or they're completely incompetent in a way that allows them to be the tools of the people that are hyper competent in an evil way.
1: The thing that's Most astonishing to me in recent days is that the Republican Party is turning on James Lankford, of all people, senator from Oklahoma. This is not a liberal guy. (laughs) No, I mean, he's been a true soldier for the Christian nationalist movement for many years, but he was actually trying to broker a compromise on the border deal with Democrats. And they got really upset with him for even trying to do that. And it shows that the Republican Party is now essentially, I mean, we can use words like authoritarian, we can even, I mean, The word fascism is very problematic, and I think it turns a lot of folks off. But here's the thing about fascist leaders. They always divide the world between the us and the them. And the key test of being a member of the us is obeying the arbitrary will of the leader. It has nothing to do with reason. It has nothing to do with with good policy. The leader can say, this is what I want you to do, and everybody gets in line. And the moment that the leader puts out an issue is a loyalty test. Everyone has to get in line if you want to keep playing ball. So that leaves no room, of course, for the politics of compromise and negotiation. It's a totally zero-sum game and everybody has to sort of sign up for what that leader wants. And that's where the Republican Party is today. In America, it's really sad because, again, the gatekeeping institutions have completely fallen apart. It's the extremists who are running the show and they're sort of, Scrapping for power in the way that could appeal to their leader, their dear leader.
0: Lankford is, I think, an object lesson in what you're just describing. He said from the floor of the United States Senate, I got a call from a commentator who said, if I persist in trying to pass this bill, he will do everything he can to destroy me. He said that is now taking place. And I think this is again, the the listeners have heard this before. It's always a good reminder And let me just say this about the Republican Party. It is the political wing of an authoritarian movement, right? That's what it does. It runs candidates for office. It's the party. Then you have the religious right, the funders, all the other things. And so what you're seeing is what Lankford is guilty of, to your point, is betrayal, right? That's how they see it. He has betrayed the faithful. He has betrayed the leader there is no credit. There are no points for trying to do the right thing.
1: In fact, you're rewarded by doing the wrong thing. It's absolutely true. It's like it's now at this point, the rump of the Republican Party that actually wants to govern. And the rest is just fomenting chaos and doing whatever Trump wants them to do. I mean, think about it. 91 counts across four criminal cases. And yet his party is standing behind him. I mean, it's really quite disgraceful and shocking.
0: And you see this with, you know, to bring Trump and the, the Christian right together. So, you know, he gets all the justices on the Supreme Court. He's got a 6-3 majority. They overturn Dobbs. And this is where, you know, again, the any nature of, you know, real politic, which is usually a foreign policy expression, but we'll use it here is like, that is a bumper that the Republican dog cannot get enough of. And in the off year elections of 2023, the Republican candidates made an issue again And they caught the bumper again, and they're going to do it again. And because they are now beholden to all this money and all these people who have all these voters, as I've always said about MAGA, if it's going to make a change, it never goes towards the light, Catherine. It always goes further into the darkness. And I believe that between Trump and his counts and his unwillingness to do anything on Ukraine or on the border and, you know, he's good. There's plenty of video out there saying, I killed Roe, I killed Roe, I killed Roe. The base will demand he go further in that direction. Republicans are, by their loyalty, leading themselves to potentially historic electoral disaster, which one can only hope.
1: You know, thanks to Jerry Manning, often these Republicans are running in safe seats. The way they win is to allow no one to run to the left of them because they want to appeal to their religious right, which has the the get-out-the-vote machine. So they adopt more and more extreme positions in some of these issues. And that's why the Republican Party has become so extraordinarily extreme. And they recognize that a lot of their policy positions are grotesquely unpopular with the majority of Americans. I mean, the the majority of overwhelming majority of Americans support choice in some form, the overwhelming majority of Republicans do support choice in some form. And even if they don't consider themselves, quote unquote, pro-choice. Of course, they want access to reproductive health care if their pregnancy goes awry. Or exceptions in the first for trimester. race, incest, exactly. life of the mother. All right. of these yeah. things. Exactly. So, you know, they know that they're not going to be able to win in a fair election. So that's why they're so intent on voter suppression, race-based gerrymandering and also take over the courts. If you can get the courts, you can pass the policies that are really unpopular with the public.
0: Right. And and you know, so where I live here in Utah, Catherine, our governor is a guy named Spencer Cox, LDS, like all political leaders for the most part, are here in Utah. All things considered, he was what I would have considered, quote, one of the good ones. I believe it was last year or maybe in 2022, he vetoed an anti-trans bill that came out of the legislature with a very thoughtful and humane veto statement. One that I was like, this makes sense. He now has a primary challenger to his right coming up in June. So he has just gotten back from the border saying it's a crisis. He stands with Greg Abbott. You know, all these people are invading Salt Lake City and the mayor of Salt Lake City and the district attorney are like, that's not happening. None of what you're just saying is happening. But you see, again, Cox would rather be governor where he's basically a eunuch to the state legislature, which we have a dictatorship of the legislature here, than stand by his principles. And it's always, I guess I shouldn't be shocked or amazing more, Catherine. It's amazing how cheap those principles are, how, ch- how cheaply bought they are.
1: It's not the politicians running the show. It's the leaders of the voter turnout machine of the Christian nationalist movement. And if you really dig into what they believe, it's incredibly dominionist. It's very theocratic. They dress themselves up in red, white, and blue and call themselves the true patriots. But the principles they endorse, the ideas they endorse are deeply at odds with our foundational principles, deeply at odds with the principles of pluralism and equality and justice that most Americans support and that are our founders, you know, the idea that our laws should be based on reason deliberated in public, that all human beings were created equal these are some of the ideas that are sort of baked into our founding documents, and these ideas are rejected out of hand. If you look at people like not just Kennedy, if you look at some of the other thinkers I write about in my book, people like David Barton, or if you look at Rush Denis, who was a mid-century theologian, whose ideas are sort of baked into a lot of the um, theology of the Christian nationalist movement today, they're incredibly radical. And
0: to bring back the red, white, and blue and the foundational principles. They believe a couple of things. One, that the United States of America was founded as a Christian republic, because it says, you know, one nation under God. The truth is, most of the founding fathers were deists at best, probably. They were Enlightenment people, right? They were not, you know, what was going to overtake the country, really, just after the clock turned, you know, January 1st on 1800. But they still hold those things. In fact, there's a part of your book where I think it was in a treaty with maybe the Barbary pirates where john adams says you know we are not a nation of god we have not been a nation of god you know we are a nation of laws and men something like that i'm probably messing it up but the point was is that they were very clear about the idea and when these you know christian nationalists now say there's nowhere that separation of church and state is in our founding documents that's a flat-out lie
1: and it's easy to go fine you just have to say right here see was it the eighth amendment that says no religious test go back to the letter to the Danbury Baptists that uh, Thomas Jefferson wrote when he said, you know, wall of separation between church and state. You know, the Baptists at the time were very, you know, they were a religious minority group, and they wanted to make sure that they had not just their sort of religious freedom, but that there was, you know, going to be a church-state separation. And and if you look at who Thomas Jefferson was reading, the sort of Enlightenment ideas that he sort of highlighted in his own writing— there's a Jefferson Bible. Uh, He actually sort of cut out the phrases of the Bible that he really liked and put it all together. I mean, a lot of our founders, they were heretics of their time in a way. You know, they, they had different ideas about religion and some of them, like Ben Franklin, sort of shifted their ideas about religion over time. But the point is that they founded America not to serve any particular religious idea or to have A pope or anything like that, a a religious leader, but they really wanted to have a government of the people, by the people, and for the people.
0: Look, the King of England is even to this day still the head of the Church of England or the Anglican Church, whatever you want to call it, right? That was antithetical to them. You know, you talk about Thomas Paine, right? He said, we don't want to be ruled by kings or gods.
1: Yeah, exactly. They thought it was tyranny to have to pay to support somebody else's religion. But the
0: idea, too, which was if you want to go worship,
1: go worship.
0: We're not going to tell you what to do. We're also not going to establish a national religion. But this is one thing I'm so curious about, Catherine. I've asked my other guests in this sort of series that we're doing on this movement is if most Americans have a not a big, but let's say a solid and consistent libertarian streak in them, right, which is I don't care what you do, right, just don't try and do it to me. And if I don't like it, leave me alone about it. When I'm in my house, leave me alone about it. If I'm going to the grocery store, leave me alone about it. But this group of people try and mix this weird libertarianism. But it's really only like, again, as I go back to, we get to do what we want to do. But we also want to tell you how to live your life. And I think this is why you've seen in places like Kansas and Kentucky and Ohio, when ballot measures either trying to outlaw abortion or enshrine. Reproductive rights and constitutions have passed because the writers of these measures or the opposition have been so smart about making it about individual liberty. Right. And that's, I think, sometimes an Achilles heel of this, which is you can't be dominionist here and say you're for individual liberty here. If that makes sense, you have to choose. And a lot of Americans get it because they're especially Republicans. There's this vestigial lizard brain we have which is like, I really don't like anybody telling me what to do, whether or not it's a president, a pastor, God, whoever it is, like, I'm going to go out and do whatever it is I want to do. And if I don't bother anybody else, nobody's going to bother me.
1: For them, I think a lot of it is religious freedom for me and not for thee. But here's where I think a lot of the funders come in. I think this is really fascinating. So you can't really understand how this movement is so successful without looking at the huge amounts of money that flow into that dense organizational infrastructure. And we're talking, you know, huge, huge amounts of money. I mean, Barry Side, for instance, just created the Marble Freedom Trust and put Leonard Leo from the Federalist Society. Who got a $1.6 billion contribution. I know. I mean, you could spend 230 some million dollars without touching the nut every single year.
0: That's crazy. Now, let's, let's, can we just go back to that? Leonard Leo could spend $20 million a month on the things he wants to do without ever touching the principle of the gift he got. Think about that. Think about that.
1: I mean, that's nearly a that's nearly million dollars a day. And some of these funders are not even particularly motivated by religion. Some of them say they are, but you know, if you really dig into them, you can see it's more like right-wing economic policy that they want low taxes or no taxes for the rich. They want minimal regulation of their businesses. They want to create the conditions that allowed them to amass these huge fortunes. And they think of the culture wars as like the shiny baubles to get the little people involved. If you can get those little people to vote on one or two issues, you can control their vote. So they'll invest in these types of organizations that say, well, you got to vote your biblical values, and that boils down to obviously you know, abortion, same-sex marriage and things like that, and that's how they do it.
0: Because, I mean, you know, this is one thing I know that you've written about and that, that others I've read have written about, was that when Roe v. Wade passed in 1973, there were plenty of conservative religious organizations that said, this is a good thing.
1: The Southern Baptist Convention published two editorials in 1971, I believe, and also 74, affirming Approval for the expansion of abortion rights. And think about, you know, when Roe versus Wade passed, Betty Ford called it a great, great decision. Barry Goldwater's Weiss actually supported abortion rights and was a founder of Planned Parenthood in Arizona. So I think that's kind of astonishing. And it
0: was only when, again, these people, whether or not it's Wyrick or Jerry Falwell, or they said, what is it that we need to get people? Fired up, right? Like we want power, we want our culture back. You know, they always want their culture back, even if they never had it. And abortion became that thing. But now, as you you pointed out, now it's not just abortion; it's taxes, the environment. Right, wanting to protect the environment is now an anti biblical thing, right? Which makes no damn sense. But remember, conservatives used to call it conservation. If you were a conservative environmentalist, you weren't an environmentalist; you were a conservationist. And you talk about education. So literally any policy prescription or policy issue has now been imbued with religiosity, not for the purposes of anything other than very wealthy pastors and very wealthy business owners, heirs, families, whatever saying, how do we get our social construct that we want and how do you get your financial construct that you want? Back to, Catherine, so no one can tell us what to do.
1: Exactly. So we keep the money flowing. So we keep the power coming. You know, sometimes this is easier to recognize when it's happening in other parts of the world. So, you know, look at Trump. If You, you know, when he gives his rallies, he's often got a preacher to his right and a preacher to his left. He's surrounding himself, bubble wrapping himself in sanctimony, talking about how we're one religion, you know, one nation, one religion. You know these preachers are my buddies, and it's a way of protecting himself against any investigation of his corruption, abuses that he's the ways he's dividing our country. These uh, authoritarian leaders, what they do is they bind themselves to these ultra-conservative religious figures in their own countries to consolidate a more authoritarian form of political power. So you can look at what Erdogan has done in Turkey. We can look at what Putin has done in Russia or what leaders in Iran do. I mean, it's not exclusive to America by any means. It's like we've seen examples of how this works all over the world. And it's a way of consolidating authoritarian power, dividing the population, keeping everybody distracted, and saying, you're with me or you're against me. And if you want to play ball and have power and good things coming your way, you've got to be with me. And that's exactly what Trump is doing.
0: Exactly. Because again, everybody has to be mad. I mean, think about this is from a material perspective, Catherine, a temporal perspective, not a spiritual, because I do think we have spiritual issues in the country and maybe hold the whole world, but maybe that's not new to us. Is materially speaking, the United States is about as successful, well, is as successful as any country in the history of humanity has been at this moment. All right. Yeah. So Interest rates are high. Yes, gas prices are high. But if you want a job, you can have a job. And you, most people don't even have to leave their homes to do it. You and I are both, I assume, doing this from where we live. And so, you know, that's the thing. And so you have to go further and further into the darkness to keep people fired up. Because if you just sat on your couch at home and you had your kids, and there's not to say we don't have problems. We certainly do. But most people have what they want. Most people have what they need. And so it makes it that much more difficult on a daily basis, I think, for these people and the Trumps of the world to your earlier point of a little while ago, everything has to be collapsing. And if it's not collapsing, and this is where I want to take the next question, Catherine, is what are they going to do in your mind or what are they capable of doing to create that reality if it won't create itself?
1: Oh my gosh, Reed, there's so much to say, so much to comment on. First of all, the disinformation machine, the propaganda has to go into overdrive in order to persuade these people that society's on the brink of collapse. They're gonna change your gender against your will. They're gonna take every single penny from you. And by the way, you hear exactly these kinds of things. If you go to you know what Reawaken America is, don't you? It's like these pro, you know, Trump traveling roadshow usually takes place in mega churches. They attract thousands of people. Usually one of the Trump sons speaks. Uh, Mike Flynn is one of the main organizers, like his dearest allies put this thing together. And it's really all about creating fear and making people so afraid. And when they're afraid and in that sort of very reactive phase and believe they're on the brink of existential collapse, then they're really easy to control and manipulate. Movement leaders know if you can separate people from the facts It makes them easier to control. And unfortunately, those propaganda networks have been really successful. I think perhaps 30% of the country now believes all the lies. The election was stolen, that Trump is a victim of a witch hunt, all that kind of stuff. What do they want? I mean, they want what people want, you know, sort of authoritarian leaders want all over the world. They want power. They want access. They want to punch down. They want to punish people who think differently than they do. What would it lead to, I mean, freedom of thought, freedom of speech, freedom of ideas, a solid public education, freedom from fear? I think that it's astonishing that a certain cohort of very wealthy people have decided to invest their fortunes in the destruction of our democracy, and they think that that is going to somehow protect their wealth? I mean, it's just a head-scratcher, isn't it?
0: Right, because when these things happen and it can happen, I'm hoping it doesn't, but you know, we'll do all we can to make sure it doesn't happen, is like it doesn't work out well for anybody. If a few people want to really sow the wind, we all reap the whirlwind, right? Nobody escapes it. Everybody gets part of it. But let me ask you this, you know, in, the, in the context of 2024, I mean, Trump, remember, launched his campaign a little less than a year ago in Waco, Texas, you know, near the anniversary of the Branch Davidians. And you've heard some of these pastors that go on, whether or not it's about QAnon, Or putting on armor for Jesus, or we've seen January 6th, you know, with the Christian flags. Do you think that one, that there will be exhortations, more direct exhortations to violence out of this movement? And secondly, do you think people will listen and take action?
1: First of all, I think that Trump is creating the permission structure for political violence. We've already seen political violence. January 6th was an incredible, disgraceful act of political violence. We've seen a lot of attacks and bomb threats, death threats against public officials and judges and other folks who they don't like. We've seen some acts of actual right-wing violence. And I think by Trump dehumanizing the political opposition, referring to the political opposition as things like vermin, that gives the permission structure, it creates a permission structure for wider political violence. Do I think it's going to... Listen, I don't make predictions about the future. But I think it's very, very dangerous, and history tells us how dangerous this is.
0: All right. As we wrap, the book, The Power Worshippers, is incredible. Read it, gang. Uh, God and Country is the movie. Catherine, in your travels, in your research, in your conversation, how do we push back on this? How do we, as the people who are the, I'm going to call us this, the upstanders for democracy, how do we start to push back on it?
1: Where to begin? First of all, we need to acknowledge that we are. Those of us who reject the politics of conquest and division and authoritarianism, we are in the majority. And they are a minority. Their only reason they have the power they do is because they are disproportionately mobilized, thanks to that sort of infrastructure, that Christian nationalist sort of voter turnout machine. The logistics of authoritarianism. Right, exactly. So there is no substitute to getting out the vote. I mean, The only way that the Republican Party is going to reform, truly, is to experience a really solid defeat. And at that point, you know, if the defeat is so overwhelming that they see, wow, this is really not working for us, that's when they're going to have to figure out that they need to pull back and reform as a more um, like a true conservative party rather than this sort of radical party.
0: We haven't had a new party since the Republican Party in 1854. And if they, you know, maybe they go the way of the Whigs.
1: Maybe. So, you know, Ralph Reed, who's one of the movement's most astute strategists, said, pay no attention to the polls. All that matters is who turns out on election day. And he's absolutely right. So getting out the vote, persuading people that their vote really matters, that they have a stake in democracy, voting not just in national elections, but also in local elections and understanding that a lot of politics is local and we need to get engaged in local politics. There are so many different avenues for doing that. There are a number of organizations that are out there protecting the vote, engaged in sort of particular issues, a lot of grassroots organizations to get involved with. Also having conversations with your own circle, with your members of your family and with your friends, volunteering to babysit for that mom down the street so she can vote on election day or or take that older person who can no longer drive driving them to the polls so that they can vote. I mean, that's a, a really critical kind of uh, thing that we, we all need to do. But beyond that, there are things we can do, you know, as individuals, but there are things we can only do when we join together with others. And that's where figure out which organizations sort of chime with your own values and your own interests in getting involved in those kinds of organizations.
0: Right. And as I have said to our listeners and to all of our supporters out there in Radioland, right? In this next nine months, we do not have to agree on anything. We only have to agree on one thing. And let's not lose sight of that. All of the other issues are important. I get it. Everybody has the thing they care about, Catherine, and I am glad they do. But I'll tell you this, gang, and I cannot stress it enough. The thing you care about will go away if we don't win, it will disappear. Your desire to save the environment, whether or not it's public school reform, private school reform, student debt, medical insurance, big pharma, big tech, whatever it is, all that stuff, guys, gone. It will be pure transactional nature. As you talked about, Catherine, that's Project 2025, guys, they want to gut the parts of the government that help people, and they want to keep the parts of the government that control people. I think sometimes we overthink this stuff, Catherine, but this is You know, we talk about being existential. They think it's existential because for them, it's their way of life and their path to power. Catherine, that's really what is existential for them. For us, it's existential and it's our path to retaining our own individual power, our own individual liberty. And I think sometimes we get caught up in authoritarianism and all the other stuff, right? Because you and I, like we spend all day, every day working on this stuff. But that's really the bottom line. At the end of the day, next January 20th, 2025. Who do you want in charge? The person who's going to tell you, no, I'm in charge. I get to tell you what to do. Or the guy who's going to say, I'm here because you elected me, right? And I'm going to do what's on your best behalf, is is best I can. And I think when it comes down to that, Catherine, it's a pretty easy call. Of course, I'm completely biased.
1: Well, I couldn't agree with you more.
0: All right. Before I let you go, first of all, thank you so much. You've given me so much of your time. Where can we find you? Where can we find your work? And where can we find the movie?
1: Well, the movie, God in Country, is coming out on February 16th. It's in theaters across the United States. The book, The Power Worshippers, Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism, is available everywhere books are sold. I have a forthcoming book. It's scheduled for February 2025. I do not yet have a name, but watch for it. I'll be announcing it soon on Twitter at Kath S. Stewart. There are two S's there, so it's Kath S. Stewart. And um, thank you so much for having me read. This has been such a pleasure to connect with you today.
0: No, absolutely. Catherine, thank you for joining me. And we'll have you back next year um, when your book comes out. Look forward to it. As always, gang, you can find me on Twitter and TikTok uh, at Reed Galen on threads and Instagram at Reed underscore Galen underscore LP and over at Substack, the Homefront. Catherine Stewart, thanks for joining me. Thank you. And everybody else. We'll see you next time. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter, at Project Lincoln, and for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. If you want to message the podcast directly, please send an email to podcast at lincolnproject.us. And if you want to personally join the fight to save our nation's democracy, visit jointheunion.us. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Re Galen. I'll see you on the next episode.